It's good to be with you, church. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, you're new or visiting. My name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor. Uh, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. We actually started the Gospel of Matthew last week. And the reason we're in the Gospel of Matthew for the, I mean, who knows how long we'll be there. We could die in this book. I have no idea. But we're going to be in it for a long time. We're in Matthew because the truth is, all of us, all of us have different ideas, different expectations, different experiences about who Jesus is and who we believe him to be. And some of those ideas are accurate and some of them actually are not. And so our hope as we go through this gospel, that you and I over the next couple of years together, that we would have a fresh, vivid, and clear picture of who Jesus actually is. Who the reigning Jesus actually is and not maybe who we have imagined him to be. So the first two chapters of Matthew are actually dealing with the origin story of Jesus. Where did he come from? What is his background? What was going on in his life before his public ministry began? And you and I know how important these origin stories are in the shaping of any person. Right? How often do you have an experience with someone and you don't quite understand them and then you learn about their story, where they came from, the family they were born into, and they begin to make a lot more sense to you. And so Matthew begins with the birth of Jesus. He begins with his background, so to speak. He, last week we looked at the lineage of Jesus, and it's a long list of names that we went through. Hallam had a great song for us last week to listen to, and we went through this list of names, and you began to see that God is showing off his grace to a diverse group of men and women who are completely unworthy of his love. And what you learn for sure is that turns out Jesus' family tree is as dysfunctional as your family tree. We all have that in common. And so then Matthew goes through that, his background, and then goes to his birth, where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to talk about the birth of Jesus. Now, it feels a bit peculiar to me as a preacher to teach on the birth of Jesus when it's 100 degrees outside and none of you have had a pumpkin spice latte today. I don't really know what to do about that, but I'm happy for it. I'm happy for it because I think it's easy, and you know this, for the birth of Christ to be absorbed by all of the traditions, the great traditions of Christmas for us. Like even when you try to let the reality of his birth like stun you the way that it should, the busyness of Christmas, presence of Christmas, oh, I got socks, thanks. Like, like you get all these, and it crowds out so quickly the reality of what you're trying to focus on. And because every Christmas we celebrate it, you think, and I think, because I know the major pieces of the story, I probably understand what's going on. So the hope is that you would look, in July, you would look at the birth of Christ and you'd see it afresh. Here's what you're going to see, is that God is with us to save us. He is with us to save us. Let's read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had, been, had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now there's several major things going on in this brief telling of the birth of Jesus. But we should know, before we get into the, in the text, you and I should know what was true about Jesus then is still true about him today. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he turns everything upside down, doesn't he? When he shows up, he takes what we thought we knew about life, what we thought we knew about ourselves, what we thought we knew about reality, and he expands, and oftentimes he explodes your pre-existing categories as to what life is like. I mean, if you've read this story many times, you probably, it's easy to overlook just how mythical it all seems. I mean, the major pieces of this story are a pregnant virgin, an angelic vision, and a prophecy made hundreds of years earlier written on an ancient scroll. It sounds like a Tolkien story for Lord of the Rings 4, doesn't it? It sounds like something you'll be watching in the movies very, very quickly here. See, because the Bible can describe reality in ways that in our Western context, if we're honest, when you read it, you immediately begin to dismiss it. Because it doesn't feel real to you. I've, I doubt many of you are like, angelic vision, I totally get that. Like, I, I don't think that's how we relate very often. Because last week when you see a lineage in a family tree, you can relate to that. This is one of those stories where when you read it, it especially if you don't believe, it can raise doubts within us. I remember when, when I was reading my the, the Bible with my cousin Luke, who didn't believe in Jesus at the time. We actually started in the Gospel of Luke because, super spiritual, his name was Luke. That's why I chose it, right? So we'll just read that. It's your name, turns out. And we read Luke 1. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, he has a very similar story of, an, of an angel talking to Zechariah, making him mute, and an angel talking to Mary and telling all, them all about the plans of God. Well, he doesn't believe. He reads this text. He's like, help me understand what's going on here. So I began to explain to him the angel and this angel speaking to Mary, speaking to Zechariah. And have you ever had that moment where you're trying to explain to someone who doesn't believe in Christ about our faith and you hear how crazy it sounds? You ever had that moment where you're talking about the Bible and you're like, is that right? Is that true? Like, that, which angel was it again? Like, you find yourself explaining the text and almost doubting it yourself because you can hear to them how outlandish it may seem. But when Jesus comes into the world, you know what he does? He makes plain to us these things you and I only had a vague sense of. When Jesus enters the world, he shows you and me that our life and our world is so much more than biology and physics and chemistry. The world is all those things, those are good things. But there is so much more in our life that cannot be measured by them. He comes into the scene and he begins to teach us about these realities about love justice and truth and beauty, these realities you and I know exist, but they can't be scientifically proven. A reality that exists of angels and demons and a God who made everything and reigns over all of it. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, you're going to read a lot of stories like this. You're going to read it and you're going to go, I, that's so outside of my context, and so it feels like it should be a myth, but what Jesus is showing you is there's so much more going on than you realize. Jesus shows on the scene in our lives, and he begins to teach you what's going on inside of you that you didn't even know about. 
He begins to show up on the scene to show you this world is so much more than maybe what science and technology can give to you because everything has limitations in showing you what does it mean to be human? Who is God and what is he like? When Jesus shows up, crazy things begin to happen. And they're not crazy because they're not real. They're crazy because we are so unfamiliar with what is most real in this life. So when you read a text like this, don't immediately doubt it, but look at it and go, Jesus is showing me something maybe I've never seen before. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go through this story. I'm gonna comment on these verse really quickly and we're gonna camp out on verse 23. So let's look at 18 through 19 again. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So some context. Mary and Joseph had been betrothed to one another before any of this happened. Before any of this happened, they had been betrothed to one another. Now it's important for you to understand that betrothal is much different than engagement today. In that day, to be betrothed to someone, but betrothal was a year-long process where the man and the woman were already legally bound to one another before they were ever actually married or lived together. So it's not like engagement, where if you're engaged now, you can call it off at any time for any reason. That's what I tell our nearly newlywed class. If they're engaged, I tell them, you still got time. You don't have to do this, okay? You have time. But in betrothal, it was much more serious. That's why Joseph says when he sees that Mary's pregnant, he decides to divorce her. But they're not married yet. Well, betrothal was this process where you're already legally bound and committed to marry the person, that to not marry them will require a certificate of divorce. Because he, like the rest of us, when Mary began to show, her, she had a little, a little baby bump, Joseph goes, uh, what's that? She goes, I promise it's from God. Okay, right? Like, he did what you and I would do and say, okay, okay, we're done, right? Like that, that's, that's, what his, that's what he's gonna do. In his mind, there's, there's no way it is what she says, so I'll do this quietly out of respect for her. But then what does God do? He sends him an angelic vision. You're gonna see a lot of these in the book of Matthew. A vision to assure him that this is indeed true, verse 20, 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, that's really important, we'll get back to that. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The whole point is that this baby in Mary's womb is not a sign of her unfaithfulness. It's a sign of God's faithfulness to save his people. And the whole point of these little verses is to say, and his name has to be Jesus, which in the Hebrew means Yeshua. It's his given name, Yeshua, which means the Lord Yahweh saves. And the naming of Jesus is really important in this story, especially to the Jewish audience to which Matthew is writing. So you look at verse 20. It says, Joseph, son of David. The angel's pointing out, you are the son of David. You are in the lineage of David. So it's really important that if Jesus, the Messiah, is born, he's born into the lineage of the great king of Israel because he has to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises we learned about last week, all of God's promises that he made to David, that he made to Abraham, they have to be fulfilled in the Messiah. But how can he be linked to Joseph if Joseph is not his father? This is where naming him is really important. You can read this text and not see this, the naming of Jesus is really important because when you name someone, 
It's an expression of your authority over them and your responsibility for them. That, that's the privilege and the right every parent has for their child. No matter what you want to name them, you have the prerogative to say, this is their name because I am over them in love and authority and responsibility for them. But Joseph is not given the right to pick his name. He's not given the prerogative of a father to pick the name of his son. God does. This is not Joseph's son, this is God's son. So God himself, as a happy father, he picks his name. But he says, Joseph, here's his name that you must give to him. What's he doing? When Joseph takes Mary as his wife and he says, your name is Jesus, what he's doing is he's adopting Jesus as his own. By naming him, he's saying, you are my own, you are in my line, you are the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That's how the story ends. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. They did not have sex until Jesus was born. That's some self-control, right? And he called his name Jesus. So the whole point of that, that's all the context going on for you to understand. That's what Matthew's trying to articulate to his Jewish audience, is for that they understand he is indeed the fulfillment of all the promises of God. But all of that is surrounding the heart of what God is saying in this text. Look at verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the middle of the story, what Matthew does, he adds his own interpretation of all that's going on. He's telling you the story. He stops and says, here's what's going on. All of this, all of this is fulfilling the prophecy made by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. He's actually quoting Isaiah 7.14. He's saying, Isaiah 7.14, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, I'm not going to get into the word for virgin there and the word for young woman using Isaiah 7.14. Let me just say this. As Christians, we trust the New Testament author's interpretation of the Old Testament. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to say, I'm going with Matthew's interpretation of what that text actually meant. And what that text meant is that this child is Emmanuel. This child is God with us. He's saying this is not some just special child. This is God wrapped in flesh. This son to be born will be fully human and fully God. The theological word for this event is the incarnation. And there are few moments more foundational, more important than this one. And it's easy to think, well, this is basic. This is basic. Of course, we believe that he's fully God, fully man, but this is astonishing in his claims. It's astonishing to think about what the claim actually is about this baby boy. What, what you and I believe, if this is a Christian, this is fundamental what it means to be a Christian, is we believe that the eternal God, no beginning, no end, the infinite God, no boundaries whatsoever, the immaterial God, he's, he's spirit, he doesn't have a body, that he came to dwell fully in our finite, our limited, our physical flesh. This is the miracle of miracles. How does something infinite dwell fully in something finite? It's a miracle. All of God pleased to dwell. And here's what God is saying to you. He's breaking in. 
He's stepping in and coming near to us. He's saying, listen, I'm not distant. I'm not a detached dictator just making commands and edicts. I'm going to step inside your story. I'm going to wrap myself in your story, and I'm going to know what it's like to be you, to be with you and like you. And the way in which he comes to us, it shows off the character and the heart of God. He didn't come to us as a fully formed man. He didn't come down out of the sky of Terminator or something to show off how strong he was. He didn't come down with immense wealth and power and stature and strength. That's not how he came to us. How did he come to us? He came to us as a fetus in the womb of an illiterate Jewish teenage girl in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. God is saying to you, he's not going to skip a step in what it means to be you. Jesus is going to go through everything you go through. He's not skipping any steps. He's not going around any classes he's supposed to take. He is going to go through everything we go through. I mean, there are so many different implications of this reality that one sermon cannot exhaust. And this is why Christianity has always cared about human life more than anybody else. Human life from the womb to the tomb. Do you want to know why? Because God himself inhabited every single aspect of it. Do you know how much dignity this gives to your life? Even the most monotonous parts of your life, you have this dignity and worth and value about. You want to know why? Because God inhabited your life. God knew what it was like to be in a womb. God knows what it's like to be one of us. And he began in the womb to show you and to show me that God himself would know what it's like to be vulnerable and helpless. There is no creature more vulnerable and more helpless than a newborn baby. If you've ever had one, you know this. There is no creature that is more dependent upon other people to keep them alive than a newborn baby. That's how God came. Jesus came to feel what it feels like to be totally vulnerable and totally dependent upon other people. He's fully human and fully God with the same experiences as you and me. So he knows what it's like to have that warm hug from someone that you love. He knows what it feels like to laugh with friends over dinner. He knows what it feels like to have that sense of accomplishment and purpose through your work. And he has experienced just how fragile those moments can be. He's experienced, those experiences I just listed are not the hard part of what it means to be human. The most vexing, the most difficult part of what it means to be human is all the pain and all the suffering and all the loss that you and I go through. He lived in the same world you and I live in where eventually, in the world that we we live in, eventually, no matter what, death always gets the last word. No matter how strong, no matter how fun, no matter how extravagant, you and I are reminded constantly, weekly, sometimes daily, this world takes those beautiful moments and it crushes them so quickly. He knows the fragility of what it means to be human. And what God is communicating is that Jesus knows what it's like to be you better than you do. He knows what it's like to be you 
better than you do. Have you ever had that moment, that moment in life where someone is explaining to you who you are better than you can articulate? You ever had that moment where they, maybe it's a, a friend or a counselor or a pastor or an artist that you look up to, and they're articulating what you're thinking and you're feeling and what you've gone through, and you're going, yes! How, did you read my journal? Like, how do you know that about me? You had that moment where they are, are and they're having these like light bulbs of clarity go off. That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly what it's like. And they're articulating to you more accurately what it's like to be you than you can yourself. This last week, I um, saw the new documentary on Mr. Rogers. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It is so powerful and so challenging. If you don't cry, something's broken in here with you, okay? Like, you have to talk to, to me, okay? Well, I'll tell you why you should be crying. Um, it is such a compelling movie. I mean, like, when you watch him interact with people, you li- I, I was thinking, I've never been kind to anybody in my whole life, apparently, because he, he's just a different level, you know? Like, I'm just gonna quit. I, I don't know what else to do. And in the documentary, they're, they're attempting to explain why is it he was so just impactful in the lives of children? And the major theme that they kept going back to was that it was fresh in his memory what it was like to be a child. It was fresh in his mind. He, he could remember acutely the confusion and the anger and the sadness and the loneliness and the powerlessness you feel as a child. They go into some of his own inner workings and psyche, and he still felt those things as an adult. He knew from experience what it was like to be bullied by other people. And so he spoke to them. When he's speaking to these children, he's speaking as one who has gone through what they've gone through, and he's not discounting their experience. That's why it was so powerful. Whereas you and I can very easily discount their experiences and forget what it was like to be them, his gift was, no, I remember what it was like. I know how it feels to not feel love, to feel different from everybody else and not know how to explain that. And so he had this incarnational love about him where he met them where they are and he knew what they needed to hear more than they even understood. That's what he did. Because there's something, there's something unique about the comfort and strength you receive from someone who has been through what you're going through, isn't there? Isn't there something unique about somebody who's going, who has been through what you're currently going through? Now, it's not that you can't be helped by people who haven't had your story. It's the beauty of the church and beauty of God's wisdom is you can have wisdom for people even if you haven't gone through their experience, but it's just different when they have. Their, their words go deeper when they've lost what you've lost. Their words go deeper when they've been discriminated against the way that you have. Their words go deeper when they've been hurt the way you've been hurt, when they have failed the way that you have failed. The strength they can give to you, the comfort they can give to you, because it's, it's not just that they know the right things about God, it's that they tend to know the right way to get those words to your heart. There's something unique about that sort of incarnation of love to somebody else. And God with us, God with us means that Jesus is like that for you more than anybody else. 
that Jesus himself is the ultimate counselor, confidant, and friend who can hear your story and genuinely say, I know, I know, I know exactly what that feels like. I've lost that too. He's that kind of counselor and friend who can know when to be quiet and just sit with you because he's been there before too. He knows exactly when to press and exactly when to challenge and exactly when to say, quit feeling sorry for yourself. He knows how to do all those things. Why? Because he's lived it. The Hebrews, book of Hebrews says that he came to be like us in every respect, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He came to be with us so he could speak into your life as one who has gone through what you're going through. So when you pour out your heart to Jesus in prayer, he's not going, oh, I've read that in a book somewhere, what you're going through. He's not like a professional licensed counselor who can go, oh, I've heard similar stories and I've seen similar pathologies to this so I can speak to this. He's not doing that. He's speaking as one who's had greater enemies than you, as one who had greater temptations than you, as one who had more intense suffering than you, and that's how he's speaking to us. While the specifics of your story and the specifics of his story may be different, the promise is the heart is the same. He was made like us in every respect. So while it is an unbelievable gift from God to have somebody who looks like you and who's gone through what you're going through to encourage and comfort you, the absolute best counselor is actually Jesus who can say, I know you better than you know you. I've gone through what you've gone through and I have trusted God all the way. He is with you and he's like you in that way. He's with us, but he's also with us to save us. Verse 21, it says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. He didn't just come merely to empathize with us. He came to save you. He came to save me. He came to save us from our sins. And this is where Jesus just shows off his utter unique worth and value. I mean, think about it for a second. Jesus is the one through which all things were made. He humbles himself to be born as a baby. And then he lived life in the same way that you and I live life. He went through all the same sorts of suffering and loss and pain. He felt the rejection from his own family, if you've felt that before. He felt the abuses of power. He felt the temptations to sin. He experienced the death of loved ones. He experienced the pain of dying slowly. He tasted what Christians will never have to taste, the wrath of God for sin on the cross. And he went through all of that and he never failed God once. Never for a moment. 
Not for a second did he ever fail him. He never sinned against God. He, at every moment of his life, loved God with all of his mind, soul, and strength. And he always loved his neighbor as himself. And his life was so perfect. His life was so pure. His love was so strong that God only left him in the tomb for three days. He only left him there for three days, and he resurrected him and showed, oh, that his death was not like any other death in the history of the world. That this death was for others, and this death was an undoing of death itself. And the name that God had given him, the name that Joseph had gave him at his birth, was now the name that was above every other name. He's now resurrected and reigning over all things. He is utterly alone in his worth and his strength and his character and his love and his life. And he uses all of that perfection and all of that grandiose superiority and all of that fame not to shame you, but to save you. All of that strength, he is able to use tenderness with you. That is the exact opposite of us. The opposite of us. Do you know the areas of your life where you are the most harsh to other people? The most impatient? The areas where you you feel most strong? In the areas of your life where you feel the most competent, the most godly, is where you'll find yourself being the most quick to be impatient and judgmental towards other people. So if you feel like you're good with money, like you came out of the womb with a budget, like you just know line numbers and... You've been saving since you were one, right? And you just, feel, you just handle it really well. Do you know what you'll find yourself saying? Maybe even thinking, because maybe you know better than to say it. How could anyone be in that much debt? I don't understand how you could ever spend money in that way. Because it's an area of strength for you. You struggle to understand other people who aren't as strong. Well, let's say you feel like you're a very accepting person. Let's say you feel like you're very accepting of other people. Do you know who you will be most harsh with? Those who are not as accepting of other people as they should be? Know who you'll be quick to judge and say things like, how could anyone ever treat someone else that way? Why? Well, I'm an accepting person. Why aren't they? And on and on it could go. When you and I have strength in an area, we're so quick to use it to crush other people. That's what we do. No matter the area, no matter what it is, we say things like, how could they ever dot, dot, dot? See, the areas that we're quick to be sympathetic are areas where we're weak too. So if you feel like a failure with money or sexuality or anger or whatever it is, you're like, well, let's calm down the judgment, guys. If you feel like a failure, you go, I mean, it's complicated. We all got a story. All of a sudden you do that kind of talk. Why? I'm weak too. I don't feel very confident in that area. You see how we operate? If I'm strong, I bring shame. If I'm weak, I bring sympathy. That's how we tend to operate. Jesus literally has no area of weakness. No area of spiritual weakness. He cannot relate to what it's like to commit a sin. He cannot, he can relate to the temptations to sin, but he has never sinned himself. His areas of strength are not just better than ours. They're in a different category. They're in a different category all together. His strength isn't just a good average like an A+. It's perfection at every level for every moment. 
And what does he do with this life full of perfection in the midst of great suffering, full of righteousness in the midst of every temptation? What does he use it to do? To bend down and to serve those who failed him. And not in a condescending way, now you owe me, but in a free sort of way of, I'm doing this because I love you. He uses all of that strength not to crush you and take what is rightfully his. He uses it to rescue you and draw you near and be tender to you and heal you. He's here to be like you and with you, to save you. To show you this is the way home. And he doesn't use force to do it. He uses kindness and mercy. He gives you what you don't deserve, his own life. And so here's the application. Don't resist him. Don't resist him. Don't resist his commands, his counsel, his comforts, his promises, his work. When you're in pain, I know a lot of you are. If you're going through suffering and you just want to get away from him because you don't understand why he would ever let that happen in your life, He's more acquainted with suffering than anyone else. He knows what it's like to be you better than you do. When you are just overwhelmed with the weight of temptation to sin and you have failed him again and again, don't resist him. Don't run from the only one who knows you the best. No one's more acquainted with suffering than Jesus. No one's more acquainted with temptations than Jesus. And yet, and yet, no one is more hopeful than him. No one is more hopeful than him because whatever we have lost, He's lost more. One of the worst things to lose in this life is someone you've loved and known your whole life. On the cross, Jesus lost his father who he had known from eternity past. He had never not known his father in love. His heart had been knit together with him forever. And on the cross, it was ripped from him. He knows loss. He knows more extreme loss than you could ever understand. And he did it for you, and guess what? He's not bitter about it. Suffering has not done to him what it so often does to us. He's not cynical. He's not jaded. He's not resigned to suffering because he knows suffering will not have the last word. He knows you better than you do. He loves you more than you do. So listen to what he tells you. Listen to what he says. If he says that path is lifeless. That reality, empty. That promise, it's a lie. Trust him. He's telling you as somebody who's already seen that play out. That's why he has so much authority in his teaching, because he's describing something he sees with crystal clarity. And when he says, no, listen, I know you can't see it, Good will be worked through this awful tragedy. You can trust him because he's seen the good that comes from that. He may not tell you, he probably won't in this life, but he will tell you in the next. With his own mouth, he'll tell you. And you'll get to see. You'll get to see that he's been alive and will be alive forever, and he will always, though, have holes in his wrists. He will always, forever, have a wound in his side to remind us now there is no path of darkness that you will walk down 
that he himself has not already gone down before you. He knows how it feels. He knows who you are. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't run. He's with you to save you. Let's pray. Father, time would fail us if we attempted to list off all the sorrows and all the pains and all the fears and all the anxiety and all the boredom and all the issues going on in this room right now. God, all the ways we're hiding, all the ways we're putting up facades to people and to you to try to cope and try to deal. God, in this moment, would we look at your word and be reminded that Jesus, you came to be with us. You know all the pressures we face. You know all the losses we've endured. You don't just speak as one who knows the right answers. You speak as one who believed what was true in the midst of every suffering and every temptation. God, would you make us a people who instead of running from you when we're scared and running from you when we're hurt and stiff-arming you when you try to get near, that we would come close and we would trust and we would cling and we would hold fast our confession. That we would be in awe, Jesus, that you would come to be with us and like us. There wasn't a part of our story you skipped. You have wept more than anyone in this room. And yet you have more hope for us than anyone in this room. No matter how we've failed you, no matter how we've doubted, no matter how we've run, Jesus, the promise you made to us is you will always be found by those who seek you. So God, even now, Spirit, would you remind us that you are with us. That Jesus' death has given us every promise is yes in him. That suffering will not always be this way. Sin will not always be this way. And there is a day coming, Jesus, when you will tell us with your own lips everything you were doing. So until that day, hold us tight as we do our best to cling to you. Now for those of us who have been running, help us pray prayers we should have prayed 10 years ago. 
For those of us who don't know you, help us now even pray prayers of God, help me. All with the confidence that Jesus, you are who you say you are. And you are with us to save us. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.